All right, we are picking up in our series, Kingdom and Culture, where we are uh, exploring some topics that, that are sometimes a bit hot topics, some, some issues that we see a prevalent narrative in our culture that may, may require some challenging or we want to explore it from a Kingdom of God perspective. Just to remind you of some definitions, we've been kind of making a distinction between the kingdom and culture. By kingdom, we mean where God is present and where life is lived his way. By culture, we mean the way we do things around here. And those two don't always line up. Sometimes there are things within our culture that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we can affirm and say, wow, that that kind of looks like the kingdom. But we we are constantly being shaped and formed by the narrative of the culture around us, and we need to understand what God says about certain issues. We've talked so far about identity, about sex, about gender. Uh, Pastor Dana came and he spoke about uh, building your, your house on a, a proper foundation. This morning we are going to be uh, exploring something different, asking the question, are we really good? as human beings. You may remember towards the end of May 2020, the uh, brutal events surrounding the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. Some of you may have watched the video and struggled through it to see a, a police officer with his knee on the neck of a man who he had pulled over. And, and the video sparked outrage and, and the reality of what happened because it, it became a, a picture for many of what, what is likely uh, an issue of, of systemic racism within police forces and in training that led to this being, uh, this event transpiring. It became a, a public picture of what many people in marginalized communities have said have been going on for years, but this was a very public event of it. And for many of us who we saw the video or we remember what happened, it, it called into question of us the, the goodness of those involved. Like, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking of, like, police officers were supposed to be those who serve and protect. Right? They were supposed to be the, the good guys. You know, you, we played cops and robbers growing up, and the cop was the good guy. This event last summer was poignant because we feel like we were supposed to be able to trust the ones in uniform. They're supposed to be, in some ways, the best of us, upholding the law of the land. And we saw this backlash of response and protests and riots and, and a whole lot of chaos out of this. We saw the, the prevalent um, call to defund the police, if, if you remember. Maybe we'd be better off without them. And there was an incident in the city of Seattle, which was in many ways kind of the logical playing out of that. What if there wasn't police? What if we just kind of governed ourselves and lived without the oversight of the law? You may remember hearing in the news of a place called Chaz or CHOP, the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, where protesters, after the, the murder of George Floyd, they, they surrounded a part of the city in Seattle, six blocks around uh, Capitol Hill and a police precinct, 
And essentially, they, they took over the area. They pushed out all the police. They took over City Hall. And it became what they called a self-governing or autonomous zone where we are now our own thing, we are going to govern, th govern things by our rules without the oversight of police. It was meant to be this kind of utopia, that if we can't trust the police, then we have our own way of governing ourselves. And we see within the first few days a co-op forming for people to be able to buy the food that they need. Community gardens begin to be planted as, as people say, well, this is, this is the new way to live. We can support one another and grow food together. There was incredible art that was being made and displayed and music. But within 25 days of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, there were two murders, four shooting victims, stolen cars, rapes, Gang violence. How does this kind of utopian self-governing zone where you know, the goodness of humanity is supposed to be able to govern itself go from being this picture of we're going to be the new way to live as humans to now it's defunct. Now it has to be dispersed because it's a place of chaos. I would say it is because None of us are good. The people of the autonomous zone could have looked at the police and said, they're the bad guys. And we're the good guys, and we're going to organize ourselves. But I would argue that neither they, nor the police, nor you or I are the good guys. No one is good. This is an unpopular idea, and I can tell by the silence of the room. We want to have hope in humanity. We want to be able to, to trust our neighbor. We want to have a, a sense of, of communal understanding and that we're all in this together. And we see it you know, in, in the structures that we're a part of, in the groups that we, that we see, places where we hope that there would be a sense of goodness, but when you dig beneath the surface, it's not there. The church, of all places where we would expect to find a standard of goodness, we've seen this reality of, of the resurfacing of, of the atrocities of, of residential schools. We know of the accounts and the proven reality of sexual abuse at the hands of clergy. We see the financial scandals that have taken place throughout the years. And listen, this is just within the last 30 years. And it goes all the way down to the splits and backstabbing of local congregations. We see it in politics. Not just in dictatorships where, you know, someone is given free reign to rule over a people, but even in the most democratic systems. We see corruption, we see buying out, we see giving privilege and, uh, and favor to those who are willing to pay for it. We see it in the sports world, in the Olympics that are meant to be you know, the, 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 the pinnacle of fair competition. We see nations who are committed to constantly trying to game the system through doping. We see it in FIFA, the, the um, 
with the, the bribery and money laundering and corruption in those organizations. It's been popular, uh, especially within the last several decades, to say that, well, part of the problem is, is patriarchy, is, is when men are in power and in charge. And yes, there are uh, downfalls to having men as the only ones in leadership, but this is a deeper issue than blaming it on patriarchy. Especially recently, we've seen in Canadian politics with Julie Payette, the former governor general, who was a, a woman filling the role who was accused of abusive ways of dealing with her employees. We see it over and over. And not just in the major crimes you read about in the news, but individually, internally, personally. The who we are when no one is looking. The, the selfishness that we just default to. You remember these words quoted by the video that we just watched, where the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he says of the people of Judah and more broadly of humanity, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I have a dark chuckle whenever... Um, whenever I hear the phrase, follow your heart. Because biblically we understand that if the heart is deceitful, that to follow our heart is actually to put ourselves in a position to follow ourselves and our own fallen desires into deceit. If we let our conscience be our guide, it may not guide us the right way. To believe in ourselves or do what makes us happy can be a, a mantra that leads us to ruin. We see this understanding of the heart actually flies in the face of, of what a lot of church practice has been uh, throughout the years in terms of, of how we deal with our children. Often as, as Christian parents, we've had this, this tendency to say, well, I just need to protect my kids from the outside world. If I, if I quarantine them off from the bad guys out there, they're going to turn out fine. I want to point you to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7, where he says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The solution isn't just, well, we need to quarantine people off and so the bad guys are out there and our innocent, pure selves and kids are in here. Because it's our hearts that are the problem. It's our kids' hearts that are the problem. I, I don't know about you, maybe it's my kids, but I don't need to teach them to do wrong. They don't have to be taught to disobey. So the question for us is, how did this evil get here? How is it that we are living in a state where we're not, we're not protected either from the world around us or even from ourselves? How is it that our hearts are in this state? The Bible takes us all the way back to the beginning for this. 
We read about you know, the, the Garden of Eden and, and God dwelling there with Adam and Eve. And we know the story, right, of the serpent that deceives them eat into eating the fruit where they, they disobey God's command. And Paul, in, in his talking about this, he says, through Adam's sin, sin entered the world. That through this act, through this disobeying God, all of a sudden this enslaving force of sin comes in the world and enslaves humanity because we've all sinned. Every one of us are in a state where our hearts are affected and corrupted by sin. Not long after the event of Adam and Eve, we read about their sons, right? Cain and Abel, you remember that story? Where one offers fruits and vegetables, the other offers a lamb as a sacrifice, as an offering to God. God preferred the lamb as the sacrifice, and Cain, who you know, grew the fruits and vegetables, he was pretty upset. And God comes to him and speaks to him. And he warns him when he says this. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Think of the, the, the picture of, you know, ancient people living in, in tents, traveling around, and, and like this ferocious animal that's just waiting at, at the threshold of the tent. Like sin is after you. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Throughout the generations, we see this as a reality. Sin is out to get us, to take advantage of us, of our desires, of the corruption and fallenness of our hearts, to the point where many of us can empathize with the words of Paul when he says in Romans 7, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. That's what I keep on doing. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. It's the frustration of knowing what's right, but always acting wrongly. I see this in my kids, where I explain clearly what it is that they're to do, and they choose otherwise. I see it in myself where I know the right thing to do, yet I choose to do otherwise. Just because we know what is right, it doesn't mean that we will act on it. In fact, Paul argues that we're actually not able to. That our hearts are so enslaved to sin that we actually lack the capacity to do the good that we know is right. That's why we can't self-help our way out of this problem. We can't just read the, the best books about this is how to live a productive, healthy life and get ourselves out of this problem. It's why we can't just, you know, educate the masses better and education gets rid of evil because if we know more, then we're not going to do wrong things. The problem is we will do the wrong thing even when we know it's wrong. It's why, even though we do our best to put in equity measures where, where we 
you know, try to, to help elevate people who come from kind of oppressed groups who wouldn't have as much opportunity as others. Even though we try to, to help demonstrate equality in society, that will not eradicate racism. Because it's a heart issue. A broken heart issue. That's why we can't just pay people higher wages and expect that, that the alleviation of poverty is going to mean a, a reduction in human evil. It's why we can't just take away weapons and make people peaceful. It's why we can't just pass blame and say, well, it's because of my upbringing or my circumstances or other excuses. Listen, all of these are band-aid solutions. There are, there are ways where we can you know, play with the issue, but they're dealing with symptoms and not the root disease. We as humans need more than just a human solution to the problem, to our hearts that are corrupted by sin. We need a solution from someone who isn't under that corruption the same way we are. So Paul in Romans 7, he talks about it this way. After saying, for I do not know... Uh, for I do not do the good that I want to do, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep doing. He comes to a point where he says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul makes it very clear that the solution to our fallen and broken hearts is only something that God can do through Jesus. Let's, let's look at another spot. Psalm 51. This is a, a prayer, a song written by David. If you remember David's story, though we uphold him as like, he's the guy. He also was an adulterer, arguably sexual abuser, and had a woman's husband killed. He doesn't have a clean track record. And dealing with this sense of guilt that he had from what he did, he writes in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And he prays to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want to teach you a little bit of Hebrew today. The word create there in Psalm 51 is the word barah. The word bara is, the first time we see it in the Bible is in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Bara. What's interesting about this word is it's different from other words used in the Bible for making things. All kinds of people make things in the Bible. They build temples. They, Paul you know, makes tents. All, all of these different things. But bara is a word that is only used of God. God is the only one who barahs something, who creates the cosmos. What I love about the language here in Psalm 51, it's a reminder when, when David prays, create in me a pure heart, O God, that it is only God who is able to barah a new heart in us. That God is the only solution to our problem. And it's not like God has been like stingy about it or holding off. In fact, like we saw in the video, God has been foretelling this work that he is going to do 
in the human heart through the prophets of the ancient Hebrews. In Ezekiel, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. God's intention has been to be the solution for the fallen, broken, evil human heart. To take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. To give us His Spirit in a way where we can fulfill a life that He calls us to. The question, though, is how do we experience that? How does that go from being, okay, here's a promise that God made to how does that work in my life? Two things for us. Break it down very simply. To trust Jesus and to follow Jesus. Let's break that down. Jesus as God in the flesh, who came and was crucified though he was innocent, and rose from the grave three days later, did something mind-blowing in that moment. Paul, in some of his language about it, talks about how Jesus on the cross disarmed the cosmic powers. That the the way that sin has enslaved us, Jesus breaks those chains. So through our faith in Christ, in our repenting of our sin and placing our allegiance in Jesus... In our, in the language of Paul, dying with Christ in his crucifixion, we're dying to being slaves to sin. We're given a new heart. Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection makes it possible for our hearts to be made new. This is this mysterious internal thing that is hard for us to describe or understand, but many of us know from experience what it's like. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and our allegiance to him is what brings about this new heart in us. We become spiritually alive. We're called to trust Christ. And we're called to follow Jesus. We are called to a life of spirit-filled living where because of Jesus' work of bringing us to life, he gives us his spirit which is working in us to change our desires and change our heart and to help us to give us the actual ability to see what God calls us to and to actually walk in it. He gives us the ability to follow through. We're no longer enslaved to our sin, but we're learning to live what it's like to be a free person. I don't know about you, though, but sometimes it's easier for us to live like we are still enslaved than it is to live free. 
really the Israelites who said, well, we knew what life was like back in Egypt where we had, you know, this routine and this stuff looked after. Sometimes it's, it's harder to sort out what it looks like to live free than to go back to what is familiar for us in our slavery. You and I, we will continue to struggle with sin during our lives. We will constantly be facing the temptation to go back to that slavery. Though the chains are not on us, we've gotten to know our captor pretty well. And what is familiar is easy. But by the power of the Spirit, we now have the capacity to say no. Jesus has called to his disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross to follow me. It is this very true reality of as my heart is being made new, as I am following the Spirit, I am going to set aside those desires that I once had. Those desires that still haunt me. So that my desires can be made new in following Jesus. To pick up the cross and to walk this road that isn't going to be easy, that might be more challenging than going back to slavery, but that's what gives me life. I want to close off with Paul's words in Romans 8. This is kind of the great climax in his book. After all of his wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free? Thank God that he does in Jesus. His next words are, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's an invitation to trust in Christ and to follow Christ by the Spirit. I think for some of us, the challenge this morning is going to be, well, maybe you're in a place where you just need to commit and say yes to Jesus. To say yes, I... I'm on his team. I trust in what he has done on the cross. And I pray that you might experience that and to have this renewed new heart in you. Some of us, maybe we have gotten to the place of saying, yeah, I've, I've proclaimed my faith in Jesus. I've got the trust Jesus checked. But maybe I haven't been so, so serious about actually following Jesus. Maybe, maybe I've come from a tradition where we've just emphasized, yes, affirm the right theology of, yes, I believe Jesus is God and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. Good, I'm taken care of. Now I get to go to heaven. And instead of saying, yes, I, I trust Jesus, now I need to sort out what it looks like for me to follow him and committing to follow. This topic, as unpopular as it is, because of how much we wish it weren't true. How much we wish we were just all fine and could all just get along and self-governing autonomous zones would work out. It should bring us humility that our hearts are broken. Humility enough to say that I need someone to help. 
someone outside of me, someone greater than I, a, a God who is willing to give his life for me. It should also breed empathy in us. Right when we see the world around us and see its brokenness, to be able to say, that's because of sin. The human heart is corrupted and enslaved to sin. No wonder. It should remind us that the enemy isn't the person, but the sin that is at work within them. In Paul's words from Ephesians, our battle's not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. There are darker things behind the scenes at work. Knowing this should also be a motivation for us to point people to the solution. I think there are a lot of people who are battling through the, I know what the right thing is to do, but I can just never do it. I want to get better, but I can't. I'm frustrated by my own inability to do what I know I need to do. Jesus is the solution out of that spiraling cycle. This is the hope we have to offer. That there's a way out. That there's a way of life. that can be freed from the slavery of sin that humanity is conquered by. Let's pray. Jesus, you know the reality of my heart. You know my struggles and the ways where I am tempted to fall back into slavery. And Jesus, you have been so gracious to give your life to conquer the power of sin in a way that I can be set free from its bondage. And I pray today, God, for your work in, in my heart, in the hearts of those of us in this room hearing that we might experience the, the kind of life that you offer us where we seek to follow by your Spirit. Where we can find victory over the power of sin in our lives. Where we can experience some of the good that you created us for. Where we might be able to find life in you outside of the spiral. May we live in a humility, knowing that it's not us who is perfect, but it is you. Help us to live victoriously, though, with the ability that you've given us by your Spirit to, to say no. To say no to sin, to say no to our desires, to take up our cross and follow you into the fullness of life. Make our hearts clean. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.